how can you be sure? How can you be sure? We always want to be sure about things, don't we? That's why we buy things from John Lewis. The UK's most trusted brand. I'm getting a dodgy look there from someone who should be representing the band. It's because we want to be sure that whenever our TV breaks down on the day of the England game, as mine did, it wasn't funny, (laughs) that we can turn to someone that we trust. It's why we look at TripAdvisor before deciding on where to go out for a meal. Did that this week. Quick recommendation, the Albany in Thames Ditton. Very good. Only three and a half stars on TripAdvisor, but I'd give it five. It's why if we want to get a builder in to do some work, we ask one of our friends for a recommendation. Because we don't want to be in the position where four years after the work's done, you realise that the safety certificates weren't filled in properly and you have to undo the garage conversion that you had done, as happened to my mum and dad about 20 years ago. That was a fun week. We always want to be sure, but how can we be sure? That's the situation the people of Judah are in right here as we look in this section of Joel tonight. Just a reminder, we're in Joel chapter 2, that's page 914 in your Bibles. And you see, last week we saw that Joel weaved a tapestry that showed judgment and punishment. Judah was the southern kingdom. It had split away from Israel, and they'd not followed God. They'd not kept God's promises. They'd not kept the covenant. So they face God's judgment. In chapter 1, verse 4, Joel showed us the locusts. Do you remember? If a female locust had some eggs in June by October... Eight, eight million, eight million, thanks for listening, eight million, and a swarm had 10 billion locusts in it. And these locusts destroyed and devastated everything. They took the grain, the wine, the oil, the main products in the land, and the land itself has dried up and there's nothing left. And the greatest calamity of all comes in chapter 1, verse 9. Because the grain and the wine and the oil were gone, the grain offerings and the drink offerings, the sacrifices to God, had to stop. They were no longer in relationship with God. And what did the people do? The destruction and devastation in the land made them weep and wail. But Joel wasn't finished, because in chapter 2, he painted a picture of an army, an elite unit of soldiers, and they wreaked havoc on the country. But in chapter 2, verse 11, we read this, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. This, This was an army that was bringing judgment on Judah from God because they hadn't followed him. And Joel left us with a question. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? But in chapter 2, verse 12, we saw some great news. God spoke. For the first time, it wasn't God's word through Joel. It was God himself. And he said to the people, even now, 
return to me. Return to me with all your heart. And and so we saw that the people gathered together. The, The old and the young, it didn't matter who you were, they came together and they fasted and they wept and they wailed and they mourned and they turned to God and they hoped. They hoped that by turning to him, he would turn his judgment away from them. But how can they be sure? How can they be sure that turning to God will work? But because that picture of God that we saw in chapter 2, verse 11, of the Lord at the head of an army of judgment, it's pretty vivid, isn't it? They turned away from God for a long time. Is that really going to work? Running to God? Well, in Joel chapter 2, verse 18 to 32, that's exactly the question that Joel answers. Here's how I'm going to phrase it. Here's the question. Can the people be sure that the Lord will respond to true repentance? Can the people be sure that the Lord will respond to true repentance? The answer, by the way, is a resounding yes. And of course, this is, this is a question that we want an answer to as well. But because you remember that we said last week that the priests, the priests stood before the judgment of God. And on behalf of the people, they shouted out, spare your people, Lord. But we saw that that was just a little picture of what Christ has done for us. But because on the cross, Christ stood before the judgment of God. We looked at Psalm 51 earlier. The the, the sins that we've committed that deserve to be rightly judged by God. And on the cross, Christ cried out for us, spare your people, Lord. But how can we be sure? How can we be sure that truly repenting, truly turning to God, that God will respond? Well, Joel says that we can be sure. And we see it immediately in the first verse, chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18 is the hinge on which the whole book turns. This is what it says. After the people had gathered together, after the people had truly repented, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. This isn't petty jealousy. This isn't like the toddler who only ever wants to play with the toy that someone else has got. It doesn't matter what they've got in the hand. It doesn't matter that that's the one that they were crying about 30 seconds ago. They now want that one. It's not that type of jealousy. No, God wants the people's full devotion. He deserves their full devotion. We've lost the meaning of of true and right jealousy. Often in the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is described as that of a of a husband and a wife. God as the husband who is 100% fully devoted and committed to his people. But his people as the wife with the wandering eye, the flirt, 
The one who actually sometimes doesn't come home at night. But God loves her. He's passionate about her. And because he's a husband, he's jealous for her. Rightly jealous. He wants her full devotion. And and here that's exactly what it means. That God wants his people back. Fully devoted to him. And, and, And pity... If he's jealous, rightly jealous, he he took pity on his people. It's exactly the same. It's a compassionate love. It's exactly the same uh, love that Pharaoh's daughter showed to Moses when she found him abandoned, helpless in the river Nile. Isn't that a great picture? Pity, care, compassion. God wants his people back and they're helpless. So he's jealous and he takes pity on them. But how can we be sure that this is the turning point? How can we be sure that the Lord will respond to true repentance? Well, in this passage, Joel gives us four things that let us know that we can be sure. And the first one is that we can be sure because he shows us his response. We can be sure because he shows us his response. And that response is to abundantly restore Judah. Look with me at verse 19. Straight away, God says, I am sending you, guess what? Grain, new wine, and olive oil. Exactly the three things that have been taken away. Immediately, they're back. The shelves are stacked. We've had a bit of a worry about this, that, that this week, haven't we? The shelves are stacked again. And they're going to satisfy them fully. This is restoration. This is full restoration. The picture that we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is, is like decreation. Things becoming uncreated. Here we see recreation. Things getting back to where they were. And in verse 20, God says, I will drive the northern horde far from you. I want to assure you that I don't come from a northern horde. (laughs) Pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea. Its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up, its smell will rise. This is the army. The army of judgment that was coming. Where are they now? (laughs) They're in the sea. They're rotting. They're so gone that you can smell them. The grain, the wine, the oil, they're all back. The enemy is gone. But but in verse 21, it continues. God, in fact, speaks to the land in verse 21, and he speaks to the animals in verse 22. He says, don't be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. 22, do not be afraid, you wild animals. You you might remember in chapter 1, that the animals were moaning, milling around. It, it even says they were, they were panting to God. And the land was dried up, shriveled, void. But in verse 23, there's no more weeping and wailing. The people are glad. The people rejoice. Why? Because the rain's coming back. <laughs> Did you feel that yesterday? <laughs> Six week, weeks without rain. We've been driving past King Ed's 
every day for the last little while and it's been getting gradually more and more like hay, <laughs> like straw. But even this evening as, we, as I drove past it to get here, there was a green tinge again. It's not fully there, but it's coming back. The rain fell and the land responds. And, and verse 24, two of the people that we saw last week who were, who were desolate farmers and vine dressers Business is now booming. Look at what it says. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And verse 25 uses that word repay. It's as if the destruction and the devastation had never happened. It's so far gone. It's been so restored. It's been totally repaid. That's why you buy your television at John Lewis, because the next day, John Lewis came around and brought us a new telly. <laughs> Total restoration. I don't know what your favourite sporting comeback is. You might think that mine happened on May the 25th, 2005. That's actually my second favourite sporting turnaround. My favourite one happened a couple of years earlier than that. I was about 17. 65 minutes gone, we were 5-0 down. It doesn't look good. It wasn't even half time. It was 65 minutes gone, 5-0 down. Uh, the other team was so confident that they were going to win uh, that some of you might know Paul Kinnaird, AK's uncle, that he came on. That's how confident they were, well into his 50s. Uh, my team was so confident that we were going to lose that they brought me on. 5-0 <laughs> down. I, I might have hit a free kick and we got a little consolation. And then very quickly that became two, and then three, and you start to look at each other, and there's only ten minutes left. Five, four, five all, we got to. I must admit that at the same time as I came on, so did one lad who played for Liverpool until he was 15, and another lad who played for Scotland until he was 17. But um, anyway, five all, we got to. And in the last minute, someone whipped the ball across the box, and I'll never forget this lad's name, Elliot Keats. He got onto the end of it, and he hit the post. The the comeback stopped at 5-0, but we were all pretty pleased. But this turnaround is far better. This gets the job done. This is a full restoration. Look at verse 26. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. It's gone from famine to feast, from weeping and wailing, from destruction and devastation to singing and shouting praises to God. Abundant restoration. But the biggest thing of all comes in verse 27. God says, Then you will know that I am in Israel that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. God's presence is back. Their relationship is restored. Amidst all of the material things that had happened in chapter 1 and 2, chapter 1 verse 9 was the key, the thing that was the most devastating thing of all, that relationship with God was gone. And here it's restored God says, I want you back. You're mine. I compassionately love you. I was jealous for you. 
you're mine and I am yours. Judah can be sure that God responds to true repentance because he shows them his response. And that's something that we can be sure of too because God shows us his response to true repentance. But because when we turn to him, when we come to him through his son Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us, we have a restored future that is the full realization of this chapter. Our sins are forgiven, our relationship with God is restored, and we have abundant blessings, in part now, fully realized in the future. If, if Judah are promised recreation, we are promised a new creation. Let me read just two verses from Revelation 21. I wonder if you can see the language that picks up on what's going on in Joel. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Yes, it it talks about the same stuff. No more weeping, no more wailing, praise, abundant restoration. But the most important thing of all, that God is present with us and we are present with him. Relationship totally and completely restored. So we can be sure because he shows us his response. But secondly, we can also be sure because he says we can be sure. I know that that's a little bit of a circular argument. But have you noticed the language in this section? Any guesses as to the most common word? Will. 22 times. It's a refrain again and again and again. Chapter 2 verse 19 never again will. Chapter 2, verse 20, I will drive. Its eastern ranks will, and its stench will. Its smell will. Verse 24, the threshing floors will. The vats will. Verse 25, I will. And from verse 26, it just explodes. You will have. You will praise. Never again will. Then you will. Never again will. I will pour out. Your sons and daughters will. Your old men will. Your young men will. I will pour out. I will show. The son will. Will be. There will be deliverance. <laughs> Do you think Joel's trying to tell us something? <laughs> and, and it's so stark because it contrasts with the language that we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 14. The, the people are told to, to truly turn to God. And they say, we will, but who knows? Who knows what will happen? We we can hope, but we can't know. Well, here, this chapter is confident. He's this confident. Will, 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 will. 
That's how confident he is. Nothing could be more certain. And and the end of verse 20 and the end of verse 21 just sums that up, doesn't it? Surely, sure, we can be sure the Lord has done great things. Joel was telling the people that they could be sure that the Lord will respond to true repentance. And we can be sure too because God tells us that we can be sure. This passage is full of wills, but but we know that we don't say, who knows? We're not asked to trust on what Christ has done for us and hope for the best. Because when Christ died, he said, it is finished. Certainty. Will. One of the most helpful verses um, that's really helped me over this last year whenever we looked at Hebrews was this verse from Hebrews 6, 19. Uh, And the writer of the Hebrews says, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. That's how sure it is. An anchor that cannot be moved. So how can we be sure that the Lord will respond to true repentance? Firstly, because he shows us his response. Secondly, because he says that we can be sure. And and thirdly, we can be sure because the Lord cares about his name. There might be 22 wills in this passage, but there's three never again wills. Can you see them? The first one in chapter 219, never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. The second in chapter 2 verse 26, never again will my people be shamed. And the third one in verse 27, never again will my people be ashamed. The same thing. 19 times God says he will do something, but three times he says that he will never again do something. Never again will he allow his people to be, to be ashamed, to become an object of scorn, the same thing. It comes from verse 17. Just look back. This is what the priests said when they cried out to God, spare your people. They reasoned with God and they said, do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Some people just get tarnished with a reputation, don't they? If, 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 if anyone uh, calls you a, a Judas, you know exactly what they mean. If someone calls you a Thomas, you might know what they mean. If someone calls you Henman, you're a bit of a bottler. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? It's true. Some people get tarnished with a reputation. Their name becomes a byword for something else. And this is the reasoning here. The priests, the people say, they don't want people to end up saying, oh, he's only gone and done a Judah. <laughs> oh, oh, look at him. He's been left on his own. He's been abandoned. Yeah, they're a bit of a Judah. That's not what they want to happen. And they don't want that to happen because that scenario of the people of, of the nation saying, where is their God? Where is Yahweh? Where is God? 
isn't really a reflection on them, is it? It's actually a reflection on God. If God's people are shamed, if God's people are left, if God's people are abandoned, then what type of God do they have? They have the type of God who abandons. They have the type of God who who leaves. God saved them in order to defend his own name and reputation. So that if anyone says, where is their God? God can say, verse 27, I'm right here. God cares about his name. He defends his name. And, And that has to be so assuring for us, hasn't it? But because if what God has done for us was based on us, then we're in a very precarious situation. Because if it was based on us, then if there's any movement in us, if, if God saw something, something good in us, then what happens if that good goes? But that's not the case. Because it's got nothing to do with us. We love because he first loved us. God saved us for his own reputation, for his own glory, for his own name's sake, in keeping with who he is, a God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. We see that reflected again in the very last verse of our passage, verse 32. Even among the survivors whom the Lord calls those people who are called by God. It's all a work of God. So firstly, we can be sure because he shows us his response. Secondly, because he says we can be sure. Thirdly, because he cares about his name. And finally, we can be sure because he gives us his spirit. Let me read verse 28 and 29. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is the most abundant restoration of all. This isn't, this isn't recreation. This is something brand new. It's excessive. Uh, Verse 27 isn't enough. God says it's not enough now that I'm in Israel. It's not enough that I'm I'm in the temple in Jerusalem. I'm going to pour out my spirit so that my spirit can be in all people who know me. You see, up until now in the Old Testament, there are very few people who are said to have had God's spirit. Uh, and it was quite, quite a limited demographic. They were always men, they were always leaders, and they were always given the Spirit for specific tasks. Samson was given the Spirit, and he, he killed a lion with his bare hands. In Exodus 35, when the temple was being built, a guy called Bezalel was given the Spirit so that he would have the skill to lead the work of the building of the temple. Gideon, a judge, he was given the Spirit. Saul and David, Israel's first two kings, they were given the Spirit. But now, verse 28, all will get the Spirit. 
Regardless of gender, sons and daughters will get the Spirit. Regardless of age, young and old will get the Spirit. Regardless of social status, verse 29, even on my servants. And when God's people get the Spirit, they prophesy, they dream dreams, they see visions, they proclaim God's word. Just, just like David did in Psalm 51. He, he uses his tongue to sing God's praises for what he's done for them. Now we know that the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost in Acts 2. On that day, what portion of scripture did Peter quote? This one. This is what he quoted. He said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And, and on that day, who heard the message? L- let me just read out a list of the people who heard the message that day. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, people from Pontus and Asia, Phrygians, Pamphylians, Egyptians, Libyans, Cyrenians, Romans, Cretans, and Arabians. <laughs> All people. And what did they say when they heard what Peter was preaching? They said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Peter got the Spirit. He proclaimed God's word to all people. 2,000 were saved that day. Gender, from all sorts of places, all sorts of ages. And, and, And if you're a Christian tonight, then it's worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, that we have the Spirit of God indwelling in us now. And there are many great things about that. But tonight, to remind us of one thing, which Joel's kind of getting at, is that because we've got the Spirit, that means that we can be sure that the Lord has responded to our true repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says this, God anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It's a Saturday afternoon, you're looking for something to do. Um, for a little while, you've, you've heard a little uh, rumble in the exhaust. So your eye is caught by some cars that are for sale in, in a car showroom, and you go in. The salesman is top quality. <laughs> you hope that he hasn't hoodwinked you. But before you know it, you're sitting down and you're talking terms. He says he'll do you a really good deal. He'll even throw in new car mats. How could you refuse? But of course, then you remember, I wasn't expecting to buy a car today. Can I put down a deposit? And he says, yeah, sure. You put down a deposit. He slaps a sold sticker on the car window and you leave. You don't enjoy the car that day. That's not until you come back with the full amount. But that car is to all extents and purposes yours. It's a guarantee You've paid the deposit. And that is what God has done for us with the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Spirit as a guarantee, a deposit. Just just the first bit of all that we're going to get in the future, which is the full realization of everything that Joel says here. So how can we be sure that the Lord will respond to true repentance? Four ways. 
Do you ever doubt that God has responded to your true repentance? Here's four things from Joel chapter 2 to remember. We can be sure that the Lord responds to true repentance because he shows us his response. Because he says that we can be sure. Will, will, will. Because he cares about his own name. His saving us is based on him and his character, not us. And we can be sure because he gives us his spirit. So Joel tells us today to be sure. If you have truly turned to God, be sure that God has responded to that. Last week we said, if you truly repent, God will relent. The passage that last week had who knows in it. This week it's confirmed, will relent. But, but there's two verses left. And, and if you're not a Christian here this evening, we're so glad that you're here with us. But really, what I've just said about being sure, that's only for those who have truly turned to God. Because read with me verse 30. God says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This goes back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. What we saw last week, that if you have not turned to God, then you are against God. And if you are against God, then God is against you. And judgment is coming. But verse 32 says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Is the Lord calling you tonight? If he is, then respond to his call and call back to him.